So in case you missed who we are with today, we have Mike Moran, aka Mike of the House of Morin. <laughs> his, uh, his email is that, and it made me think that he was part of the cast of Game of Thrones or something. And <laughs> it's absolutely excellent. The next, we also have Lex joining us who won me over when we were doing the Twimmel off day debate and she ferociously debated about whether or not a data scientist should know Kubernetes, which I thought was fascinating, gave some very valid points and so had to invite her for this session. And then Michael Munn, who is the missing member that we have not interviewed yet from this book right here. So if you can't see it, you probably have seen or hopefully you've seen when we talked with Lack and when we talked with Sarah. Now we get to hear Mike's or Michael's uh, information and, and experience and all of that good stuff. So that's what we got today. This is who we are dealing with. And we wanted to talk a bit about different maturing ideas, like going from a product or an idea to a mature machine learning product. Uh, and also, there's some questions I think that we can weave in there around explainability. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about tools and tool chains. But I think there's something that was really interesting someone said in the Slack community today about how the majority of places right now that you're seeing MLOps being talked about there's a lot of emphasis on tools and what we strive to do or what we're doing in the MLOps community is we're not placing that much emphasis on the tools and more about the culture and the practice and what needs to be done beyond the tooling. So we're going to leave the tools question for last unless it really pops up and somebody really wants to say something or another uh, because it's not about the tools. It's as my dad used to say, it's not the wand, it's the wizard. So that is how we're going to start this off. And I think we can we can just get like right into this maturing a data product idea, like how we can go from a an idea to an actual tangible product. And so maybe Lex, you can start us off with something around some common roadblocks that you've seen in your years of experience when it comes to implementing new machine learning ideas? Sure. Um, so just to give a little context about me. So I work at Spotify as the ML engagement lead. And one of the things that I do is I work with lots of different teams who are wanting to implement ML. And so I'm seeing, I see roadblocks all the time, but the main one, um, has to do with the data that they're collecting. And so people will often think about what types of ML they want to be doing, but they won't have the correct type of infrastructure to get the data that they need to be able to train the model. Um, so that's usually when people are like rushing into something and then they realize I have zero training data. Um, it's surprising how often that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It, Mike, I see, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, so I was just thinking back to in Skyscanner, which we've been from, um, kind of what, what sort of things made the difference in the past two or three years where we've had a bit more success. Um, and it's definitely things like access to data, but I think one thing we're calling out is um, not trying to do things in a kind of hero style. So what I mean by that is that <clears throat> it's not that prior to three years ago in Skyscanner, we weren't doing anything to do with machine learning. It's just that it was in isolated pockets around the company. And for example, one particular team I was in that was owning the homepage at the time, we were deploying a model, we were kind of owning it ourselves, but we then didn't try and, we didn't manage to make that a thing at the company. It, it, it kind of, lived and died by the, the subset of people in the team that were doing it. Um, and the thing that made the huge difference about three years ago was that effectively, I'm not, I don't think it was set up this way, but that effectively it was 
all the people in Skyscanner who'd complained about us not doing machine learning properly were kind of put together in one place and said, okay, you sort out. Um, and one of the big things that came out of that was we, we kind of dogfooded a lot of the stuff, but then the outcome of that was a set of systems and like different levels of systems that other people could then use. And, and the actual success was us getting other people to use it, not not doing everything ourselves kind of thing. And were you writing reports and how did you like consolidate all that knowledge? Um, I think it was more about making it active as in like the actual outcome was not not knowledge of here's here's a here's a run book or here's a thing you should do, but rather here's a set of systems and here's how you get your thing into production and an awful lot of kind of embedding in, inside other teams or having having people who were in that group who came from other teams. So the, the particular kind of pilot project we, we chose was to do with hotels where we knew there was a benefit. Um, it was tractable and it wasn't so big as like flights, which is tends to have a bigger scale. And so we knew it was solvable. We kind of went and did that ourselves. But then the people who were involved in that were from hotels and they kind of took it back to hotels and said, okay, here's what we build on top of this and here's where we do, do other things. So it was kind of build it, have it, having a very tight loop where we could, we could go away and solve the problems ourselves. There was about a group of maybe about 20 or 30 of us that, at, at some points. And it was very loosely structured and we, we kind of all understood what we were doing. So we could all kind of tightly interact. But then the outcome of that was that we then pulled out some systems for model serving and for uh, feature store and various other things and then documented them and then kind of focused heavily on self-service and kind of bringing other people allowed to use it so that they didn't have to be experts on how do you serve models at scale, that kind of thing. Oh, that's excellent. So Michael, I'm gonna ask you some bottlenecks that you've seen and ways that we can inadvertently set ourselves up for failure without even realizing it when it comes to taking an idea into production. Um, but yeah, just as far as bottleneck that you mentioned before, and to call out some things that like Lex was saying earlier, like, you know, in my role as an ML engineer in cloud, like what we'll do oftentimes is we'll have these meetings with customers and they have some goal, right? They have some idea, they want to build some model. And it always started with an initial conversation of like, you know, how feasible is this as a project? And we'll have these things, you know, these kickoffs. And like, and, and just to reiterate what she was saying, like, you know, so many times we'll have these, these meetings and it's just like, you know, they, they have an idea, they know what they want to build, they know, they know the model, they, they, they want to be able to, you know, the use case they have in mind is very well defined, but the data they want to be able to have to build that model just doesn't exist. And so, you know, a lot of those conversations end with us saying, okay, like you're here now, and like what you need to do is start collecting this exact data. Like you want your data in this format with this, with these features to be able to, to have this predictive label. And so, you know, just like the bottlenecks I typically see are, are even just like very, in the inception, it's just like those initial conversations cause a bottleneck for, for like what can actually, what can actually happen. But then there's this huge, there's this bottleneck even further down the road of like, once we've built the model, getting buy-in from the higher parts in the organization to understand like where that model is gonna be used and, and just understanding like, does, is this actually meeting the business use case? And like, can, can you know, it, is this actually gonna be used? It's a surprising bottleneck because we put, put so much work as a team into building the model, you know, getting it into production usually is a huge roadblock and actually, you know, for these companies and every engagement we do is different. They have their own pain points, right? So they have their own issues. And so I feel like every time we go into it, that's just a, a new learning experience to figure out like, okay, you're here, you are, you're at point A, you want to get to point B, like what do you need as a customer? Like what tool do you need to lead to develop to be able to get you through that, that next stage of the process? Excellent. Yeah. And I was going to jump in because he yeah. reminded me of another thing. Uh, a lot of times in these initial conversations, um, we'll, they'll have ideas that are too general. That's another thing that I see a lot where it's like they have a general idea of what they want to do. But when you're actually looking at like, what do you want to predict? What types of metrics do you want to move? And like why you want to do it is definitely something that comes up. Michael, I think you talked about the why, which <laughs> comes into play when you're trying to convince people to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
And that's something that we were just talking to uh, Luigi from MLM Production about like last week and how he was mentioning how important it is to have the visibility or at least if you're getting something brought down or you're getting a project that's put on your plate, you really understand what that project is trying to go for. And you really have the, the visibility as to what's going to make the biggest impact on the business. So you don't go on a detour and then yeah. end up yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Just jump in real quick. Like, that's actually like one of the things I find like the most, like the most entertaining is like you, you meet these customers and like, it always starts off with like, you know, so many times you see, I work with engineers and I'm guilty of this as well, but like you get really excited about technology. Like you just want to build something in one direction. It's like, okay, cool. How deep can we go? Like how, how advanced can we make this model? And so it's really, it's really important. I, I found along the way, like to really tie that back with exactly what you're saying. It's like, you, you want to understand like, what's the ultimate goal? Like what, what are our, our, like our, our eval metrics that we decide like early, early on that, that the businesses decide they want to optimize because otherwise it just becomes like, like an intellectual exercise and complexity, which is fun, but like not, not super useful in the grander scheme. <laughs> one, exactly. one thing is what, just to jump in worth pointing out is that um, uh, I was really giving advice to depending on what context the company's in, because um, you could have a company that uh, has a lot of low hanging fruit, fruit that might not even be to do with machine learning. And if you gave them the advice to do lots of investment in machine learning, then you'd be wasting their time. Um, for us, we got to the point where it wasn't really possible for us to make big improvements without doing a big, a reasonable investment in infrastructure and logging and stuff like that. But if you were to argue to make that investment when you had plenty of other easier things to do, then then you're going to fail kind of to convince anyone perfectly reasonably that like no, there's plenty more important stuff to do first. Yeah, yeah. the hmm. and like that uh, the eighty twenty principle, right? What are those? 20% of the things that we can do really that are making the biggest impact. So along those lines, I'm thinking about something like when you should be bringing on complexity and when you know that you're ready to make it more mature, like when you're going, when you should try and say, all right, this has hit the, uh, the maximum amount that we need it to be hitting now we need to do something new and what are some signs that you know you're at the top end and you're throttling or you're you're at the red line i should say uh mike you on you want to uh so it's going to be super confusing if i just say mike because we've got two of them on there i'm going to call them house of moran and then and and michael i'll try and distinguish you two by that so michael do you want to take a stab at that one <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, one thing is like, again, like, I think a lot of times, well, it, it's really helpful to sort of like set your benchmarks out, like early as possible, and like, understand like, what's good enough, because again, you can just find yourself iterating over and over. And it really helps as, you know, someone in the project who's sort of like tying it, you know, all the engineering effort, like, what is the ultimate goal to be like, okay, this is this is good, let's move this to the next stage. But I also I find like the sort of like the I don't say the converse, but the other side of that question in my mind is like, how do you like this monitoring aspect as well? Because, you know, as we all like, as you know, like you build some model, it's like a huge, it's like a big development issue. Like if you're getting into production, that's great. And that's already a lot of work, but then it becomes a question of like, okay, well then, you know, for how long is that model good and fresh? And it really depends a lot. And there's like different techniques you can use to, that we've used to like try to, like, you know, anticipate that change. But I find more and more, it's like, it's really important to, um, so in the life cycle of, of, of the model development, like the, the, the post-production, the post-productionization you know, aspect is just as important and requires its own like level of, of like technical attention to be able to you know, monitor model predictions and be able to say, okay, like, you know, now it's time to revisit. We need to, you know, what's, what's going wrong? Like, why is our model, why are our model predictions no longer fit for, fit for purpose? Like what's happening? And um, and then that requires its own like continual conversation. But it's it's kind of interesting you bring that up because like the model monitoring aspect I found more and more is 
you know, as much of a lift typically, even more so just like working into the infrastructure and being able to keep track of that as it would be when you're using those evaluation metrics during the development process. Mm. Great points. Anybody else want to chime in? I see some lecture yeah. looking like, yeah, there <laughs> yeah. we go. I'm kind of curious how you guys do it at Spotify too, because you must have so much and, and, and anywhere. Like it's like, just how that actually works in practice, I find like it always gets really interesting, like where the, the, the sharp bits of machine learning. Yeah. So one of the things that I usually tell people, like, so there are two different parts. There's the part where, you know, you don't know if you should be using ML yet. And then there's the post-production, like, should I be refreshing my model? Um, in both cases, I think it's really important to have that type of baseline metric that you're trying to move. And so when you're before ML, what I like to have people do is implement a heuristic and implement like a simpler way to do things so that they can really understand the problem and understand how far it gets them to that baseline metric. And if it gets them above that point, then, you know, good enough for now. But if it doesn't, that's when you can start doing something more complicated. Um, when it comes to like the post-production, you still have your evaluation metric, you know, and so you want to make sure that your model is consistently hitting that. But then beyond that, you have to be monitoring the data with like data drift and seeing if the problem changes and if, you know, what you're predicting is changing. It's kind of like you just have to keep a pulse on the solution to make sure that you're hitting everything that you want to. Um, but yeah, that's usually why I tell people. <laughs> yeah, that makes, <laughs> that makes a ton of sense. And, and as far as like this, like the idea of a heuristic benchmark, I find like, and I, again, like I'm kind of curious how this sort of matches against your both, both of your experiences, but like, you know, a heuristic benchmark is good both for like during development and, and post-production to like make sure that you're still meeting your needs. But then also it's, it's like really useful to make it heuristic, to be able to communicate to the people in the business who oftentimes may not have a super technical background and they just want to know, like, again, it's like back to that, that feedback loop of like, how do we explain the why and like, you know, the, the value add of, of this certain machine learning aspect. So it's like one, like showing, like being able to connect with, with people at that level and say like, you know, this is why it's useful. But then also it's where it bleeds into this like issue of like explainability. And mm -hmm. the next question I find is so quickly is like, okay, well, well, then why is it making that prediction? Okay, cool. Like we get that like this in this eval metric on this aggregated level, it's doing quote unquote better, but why? Like, how are we going to, like, what, why do we want to use this going forward? And it's like this extra bit of a conversation to like really get buy-in at mm -hmm. the higher levels of the org. Yeah. So just Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> as I was going to say, just, just on that point, so, go, so going back to explainability, I think it's relevant here. I'll come to that in a second. Um, <clears throat> going back to your, your question about um, how you choose what what you want to achieve, I think there needs to be a mix of ambition versus reality. So we we chose, uh, we already had something in, in the apps and in, in the website that was a best uh, kind of ranking. And so we thought, okay, we've got some, some freedom to, to operate there. Um, we can choose we choose to see this as a ranking problem. The ambition comes from okay, so what is what is the kind of theoretical or Kaggle kind of level best performing thing for for a for for a ranking? That's kind of the ambition. But then the first thing that we actually tried was like logistic, logistic regression, and super simple. And to the explainability point, that actually gave us a lot of power because we got legitimate pushback from some product owners in the hotel space saying, why is it doing this? It doesn't make sense to me. And because we'd taken, taken something that was quite simple, we could literally go back and say, okay, for this example, uh, the reason that it ranked that one rather than that one, because of these three factors, uh, that's why it's doing it. And that kind of built up the confidence such that um, we didn't then get repeatedly asked, why is it doing this? Because we could actually point to something that was easy to explain. If we'd gone for the fully ambitious like XG boost or whatever immediately, then that would have been a lot harder to explain and we probably would have failed earlier because it would have looked like dangerous magic kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great segue into our next topic, right? <laughs> Where we wanted to talk about, we wanted to deep dive on explainability because it is something that is becoming more and more important, I think, as 
we start to see things like the new proposed EU regulations that are coming out and uh, Mike House of Morin is in the EU, right? So you're actually, are you in the EU or did you get Brexited? Yeah. Well, we're, right. we're, we're still covered by the same laws. So okay. that's the important part. <laughs> so you're, you're there, like you have to really think about that, right? I mean, but so does everyone. I, I imagine Lex, you also have to be cognizant of this because Spotify is, I'm using Spotify and I'm in Germany and Michael also like Google's everywhere. So these things are very important to, and they're top of mind for a lot of people. Um, let's maybe talk a, a little bit about the ideas of like the trends that you all have been seeing in the explainable AI like development and maybe even, I know I said we're, we weren't going to talk about tooling, but like tooling space, what you should expect when you start talking about explainable AI, what does that even mean? Uh, we could start there. And I know, Michael, you wanted to talk about this. And, and Lex, you were also stoked about this. Maybe Lex, you can start us off and then we'll, we'll throw it over to Michael. Sure. Um, so I'm doing my research right now in explainable AI. So when Michael brought this up, I was like, great, I can talk about this forever. Um, so I think... Um, you know, there's different ways to think about it, right? So there's like your white box models, which is your linear regression. And then you have your black box models, which is like those deep neural nets. And so there's different ways you can go about approaching explainable AI. And it starts to get really complicated when you start working with more complicated models. And so one of the things that I found is that people will want to use different types of explainable methods on deep neural nets or XGBoost, but the methods themselves are so complicated that it's hard for them to understand what the outcome actually is or what the visualizations are telling them. Um, so I think, I feel like Shaft is very hot right now <laughs> as an explainable method. <laughs> um, and it's being used everywhere. So it's being used in Google's tools, SageMaker is using it. Um, there's the SHAP Python package. And a lot of people are using SHAP, but might not actually understand like how it happens or what the end visualization means. So it's like this bridge that I think needs to be built of like, here's the explainable method. This is how you visualize it. And this is how you use it to better your models. I feel like that's a really big gap uh, right now in the business. Yeah, I'll just jump in real quick and say like a thousand percent, like exactly what you said. I'm actually quite curious, like what kind of research you're doing in explainability, because also for me, it's become like a really big topic. And I've been working pretty closely with like, the explainable AI teams at Google just to to understand yourself better and 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 and, and compiling a, a collection of resources exactly as you describe, right? Because you know, in in my role, I oftentimes my work is like really project based, where I work with like different customers, and that may either be in like helping them build a model and deploy a model, or it may be um, you know working more hands on, like actually teaching them how to do machine learning. And you know, you're asking about like you know how how this is the, the trend, but the biggest, the most simple trend is like. Every engagement now like, that I have, there's some issue about explainability. Like people want to know more and more about explainability, um, and and exactly what you're saying, like about like the uh, the tools, like and and also like how do you use the tools? Like what are the best practices? Like whatever tool you're using, like integrated gradients or Shaft, whatever it is, there's typically going to be some parameters that you have to choose, and and people don't really know, right? I mean, I think they, I should say they don't know, they probably do, but just like making that that choice and like why you're choosing you know, this number of steps, or like why, how, how this actually is working under the hood. I think a lot of times they are quite complicated and people don't know. And so, you know, having a collection of resources that just like cuts like the, separates the wheat from the chaff. It's like, here's your data set, here's your problem. Like whether it's like vision or text or, or maybe it's just structured data. And it's like, you know, here's the tools you could use that work well for that. And like, you know, when you're choosing this tool, here's the pros and the cons. Like, you know, here's like, just keep it really simple. Like here's, Here's what it works well for. Here's where it doesn't. And as you're choosing your parameters, like this is what you want to weigh again. So there's always a trade-off. I feel like there's just illuminating the trade-offs that occur in any area of 
of machine learning is really useful. And it, and it, it feels like there's, there's a lot of disparate sources out there about explainability. And like, you know, I've, I've had my, I found myself like hunting down various resources to try to like simplify it for people I've, or customers I've worked with. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's hard to find those resources are hard to find um because it changes you know so explainability methods and then using it for things where you get into more sensitive areas like fairness um what you're doing is going to change based off of the problem you're working with you know because each thing that you're predicting it's and you're going to have different features. You're going to have different ways that they're interacting with one another. And so it's kind of hard to nail down like exactly which methods will be right because it might change from model to model. But that's like a whole entire other thing. <laughs> but from, from the research standpoint, what I'm doing, I'm looking at explainable AI within interpretable um, or within how different um, variables interact with one another, because that's one of the really hard things is getting, um, figuring out all, how your variables are interacting to create your end prediction. And so there's, should be some type of way, you know, to be able to embed your variables so that you can figure out what's going on and how they affect one another. Um, I haven't found anything that's really great for, for interaction, uh, interaction explainability beyond like two variables, but um, yeah, that's murky, murky area. <laughs> yeah, already it sounds really tricky. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, yeah. Just, so, just one thing. Oh, was, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, yeah I was going to mention, is that I think it's worth also being clear about who you're explaining it to, because um, in our context, sometimes that that organization you need to explain to might be a regulator. So particularly with things around prices, uh, this is like predates any sort of machine learning stuff is uh, a, a regulator can perfectly rightly come in and say, please tell me why you put that price at that value on that date. And is that did that price really exist or are you predicting stuff that that, that kind of thing? Um, so and maybe argue that, that at that point it becomes not so much explainability but traceability as in you, you sometimes need to be able to say exactly why something appeared and rather than having a kind of a qualitative explanation you actually have to say okay tell me exactly where that price came from kind of thing so we are only now going into that area after after for about two or three years of getting more used to doing simpler things and it's only we're only now deploying say neural networks for some stuff once we've we've shown that the simpler thing is not performant enough because there's a definite higher risk in our context that comes from applying these kind of more complicated techniques because you might I might be legitimately asked to say explain me exactly what happened because I don't trust that you're doing the right thing. Kind of thing. Mm. And do you, do you all feel that a monitoring solution today, no matter what you're using or how you're monitoring, is the explainable piece? like a necessity? So I'm biased <laughs> and I'm going to say yes. <laughs> but, um, I think explainability is important within like every part of the machine learning workflow. So, and it's especially important if you're trying to make sure that you're deploying like fair and safe models. And so you have to be able to look into your data sets and explain what's happening in your data. Then you have to look into your model and explain what's happening in your model. And then you have to look into like how you're serving predictions. And so it kind of carries through um, and having some way to monitor it would be great. But I don't know if there's a tool out there that actively does that. There's a lot of tools that do bits and pieces of explainability, but no tool that I think does a 360 view of everything. It, it's funny to hear you say that because that's kind of a conversation we've had internally with people. It's just like it's like this explainability, the way it's approached and the way it's you know thought about a lot of times is like sort of there's like you know white box or black box models, and there's like pre-hoc and post-hoc ways to you know assess how explainable your model is. But, um, but really, it's like actually taking an even more broad view, like you described, where it's like, what's your, in the entire ML workflow, in your entire pipeline, like having, having explainability, be able to put under a microscope, every one of those aspects to be able to, to really explain like what's, what's happening and why. And, and again, like 
I probably agree with your bias that you know it, it, it serves many purposes for different different groups, obviously. But but yeah, I think it is necessary. If only there can, there can be so much bias that's introduced in models, just as humans developing these, and to ensure fairness and you know that you're you're actually building the right thing. I think it's I think it's it's really useful. And it's interesting to hear Mike you describe like you know in in, in your in your practice like what what you're doing like. You know, it makes a ton of sense. Like, if you have a simpler model that can, you know, don't build a bigger model just to build a bigger model, a fancier model. Like, if you have a simple model that you can explain, like, you know, that already beats out, like, probably a fancier neural network. Mm, such a great point. And I'm seeing some questions coming through here in the chat. So I want to give a shout out to everyone that is asking these questions. Thank you for asking them, first of all, and please keep them coming. I've got an awesome one up here. Let me just get to it. Uh, this was back when we were talking about taking the idea to production. And um, oh, I'm so bad with names, especially <laughs> when they come from all over the world. So Herve, Herve, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong, is asking, have you used the ML canvas ever to address this um, question of taking idea to production and it is from Luis Dorad Dorad again with the names uh and I've actually seen that canvas it's incredible it has a lot to do with another canvas I think it's the lean someone can tell me in the in the chat what it really heavily leans on um but yeah has anyone heard of that or used it is this like the AI canvas that's in prediction machines, that book, uh, prediction machines? No, I don't think I've so. Because I've used that. <laughs> what is that one? Tell us about that. Um, so it's really great at laying out all of the different uh, steps of setting up your AI or ML project. So it's like, what do you want to be predicting? Um, what types of like metrics are you going to use to make sure you're predicting the right thing? What types of data to collect? It's kind of like the first step to getting into ML. And I believe prediction machines is more along the lines of looking at ML from a business standpoint than a technical standpoint. So it's a little bit more high level. Yeah. yeah. Just organizing the ideas. That makes sense. Exactly. So we'll, We'll find that and put it in the chat and put it in the description for those listening in the future. Anybody else have any comments on that that question before we move on? Is it have a very very quick look at it there? Um, I think it's maybe a worthwhile distinction between uh, what is what is the things you need to be doing or thinking about to bootstrap any sort of machine learning versus the particular things for your particular problem. So. Like any any first project you do, will be the the one where you discover you've not logging your data or you you can't even deploy a model kind of thing. So there, I think there may be some aspects of the ML canvas that are effectively you need to be this high to do ML kind of thing, versus the stuff that's more bespoke to a particular problem of do you know even know what problem you're trying to solve kind of thing. Great, great point. Okay, so next question coming through here the, about the explainability, uh, maybe some resources that you all have on where to get started with explainable AI? I definitely have resources, um, <laughs> but I don't have them off the top of my head. There's a really great uh, book. It's actually like, you know, one of those GitHub books um, where you can get it for free online about explainable AI. And um, I can try and find the link. There we go. Send we'll it to send you guys. It. Exactly. Yeah. We'll I think I know that book. It's like that, the Molnar, the interpretable AI, I think is, or interpretable machine learning, I think is the, and as far as like other resources, I, I unfortunately, I, I have like a, a, I just have a lot of tabs saved in my, in my browser where it's like, you know, I have like a, now I have like a, a longer, longer reading list. A lot of the material is, there's like, there's a few book books. I know that Eno O'Reilly is coming out with a, a book on like responsible AI that's sort of hitting explainability and fairness and ethical AI and all that kind of stuff. Um, but like, I find like, you know, sometimes when I want to like know about a technique, it really helps just like go to the source or go to the, maybe even the paper. It depends on how deep you want to get into it. But typically there's a lot of blog posts of people like talking about like, you know, how, how to use a source, how to use a, a tool properly. And I don't know, I've sort of cobbled together a lot of resources that way. 
and because Mike is too humble to say it, in his book, he has a chapter on explainable, what is it, explainable predictions, and it goes into responsible yeah, AI. Yeah, we have, we have a bit on explainability there as well. We have, so, like, in the very last part, we talk about, like, uh, stakeholder management. So we talk about a heuristic benchmark, and we talk about, like, explainable predictions and fairness. These are, like, huge topics on their own. I feel like fairness, you could write a book on, on just fairness alone yeah. as well, but... Completely. Maybe, right. maybe one thing so, to add is like maybe not, not just a book because sometimes it's really like well I think in these areas it's really important to find an expert that you trust ideally someone you can work with at your company like I've really bought, benefited from working out with um, Veronica Stamati who's in the privacy side of Skyscanner and a lot of the a lot of the working out what is allowed from a point of view of like bias and kind of GDPR requires a very quick back and forth of like okay I'll explain this context to you you, you interpret that i'll reinterpret that and it, it, it took me a good kind of like three three to three to six months of wall clock time to get up to speed on okay for gdpr here's the things you need to do and i think it's quite hard to learn that from a book particularly since a lot of the stuff in gdpr area is very very dry and very very abstract so um even if it's not something in your company if there's a local meetup or uh, some some people who are in that domain that you can have a conversation with over a period of time to like bounce back back and forward ideas because quite often it requires a lot of translation between what ML wants to do and what GDPR says you can and they tend to be you're effectively translating between two back and forth between two different languages. Mike you've got a lot of work cut out for you with the new regulations that are coming out huh there's three of them that are coming hard <laughs> you're going to be spending a lot of time with that mentor of yours over the coming months so uh there's another this is a great question coming through in the chat from alone wouldn't the purpose of explainable wouldn't the purpose of explainable model uh be to check that the model is focusing on the part of the data that is relevant for making a prediction i'll let maybe lex do you want to have a go at that do you yeah, I'm trying to think of like how to answer it. <laughs> um, so I think it could be one of the purposes. I think one of the things we chatted about is like there's multiple purposes for explainable AI, and this is one of them. Um, definitely, you know, using explainable AI as a way to debug your model is a thing. Um, so like I've seen people do it for like neural nets to make sure that all of your different neurons are activating the way they're supposed to. And I've also seen it for like, you know, checking if your features are actually important or not. So it's kind of like using explainable AI in that model building segment where you're gut checking what you're doing. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more purposes just than just that one. <laughs> just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's like there's yeah, that, that, I totally agree. There's there's you know it sort of fit, meets a need for like the developers to debug or like you know regulators to understand the why. And there's even like different like there's so many different techniques, right? And like someone from your question, it sounds like a, this technique is sort of focusing on like a local prediction. It's like okay, your model made a prediction. You know why why for this prediction like which features were most relevant for for that for that prediction but there's also ways you can assess uh, you know try to explain a, a model in a more global way right so it's like okay of all like you know more global for it here a holistic view you know which features are most important like what's the feature importance for for these models so it can sort of be used in lots of different ways obviously and there's like there's, there's a, a whole lot of techniques um, but that is certainly one of the ones that's really useful. And I've sort of found, you know, just colleagues working on, you know, dipping into it a bit more because they're like, okay, they have this big complex model and they want to, you know, debug. And there's, there's really great, if you look around, there's really great stories of how it's like, you know, like, you know, these heat maps you can put on, on like for like vision models for images and you can sort of see like, what were the relevant parts of, of, of that image that led to that model's prediction for that, for that instance. And it's kind of, it can be really useful just as a practitioner from a practitioner side for debugging. Hmm. So another question that's coming through here and then we'll, I'll jump back in. And I feel like I know the answer to this one, but I, cause I mean, you all are working at very large companies. It's not, they're not startups anymore, are they? So uh, the question that's coming through is, do you work in situations where everyone is working in the same language? 
uh, like Python? Maybe. <laughs> it depends. Yeah. We'll go with an, it I feel depends like on that one. every question I, we're getting, I'm like, it depends. Because <laughs> it's, well, Mike, uh, Google Mike, <laughs> Google Mike. Um, I think you're, since you're in engagements, you probably work with a lot of different types of people and stakeholders. And depending on the type of people you're working with, they're going to use different tools and different languages. And so that's why it's so hard for me to say, yes, we all work in one thing because, you know, there's people that will be more comfortable with like working in R. Like if you're working with data scientists, I get a lot of people who are comfortable with R. And then for machine learning engineering, I get a lot of people who are comfortable in Python, but sometimes Java will come up. And so it it really depends on who you're working with. But you know, if you're working on a project with somebody, I would say you should be working in the same language <laughs> just to make things easier from a code, <laughs> code uh, point of view. But you know, to each their own. Like, why not build a model in three different languages? <laughs> that was sarcasm, by yeah, the way. Yeah. <laughs> <That was sarcasm. laughs> yeah, so for us, like, yeah, just because of the type of projects I work on, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty project-based, but typically, yeah, you're sort of meeting the custom people where they are, customers where they are. And, but typically whatever we're building is, yeah, it's mostly going to be in, in Python. And, you know, we never really, I haven't really touched anything with Java um, along the way. And like, and for like internal projects, sometimes we'll be on like C plus plus if like I don't know performance is like really an issue. But um, but typically like whatever we want to deliver for a customer, it's like you know it's mostly Python. You know, there's maybe now with like BQML being so big, um, I find myself doing more and more SQL for machine learning, which is interesting. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like it's usually it's usually that. I think another way to phrase the question is thinking of your internal customers. Like, what what language do they want to use? Because um, we spent quite a lot of time for for model deployment, making it so that someone can write stuff in Python and use all the libraries they're familiar with, but then still integrate it with our kind of like service mesh and so on, but make it so that the person writing the model doesn't need to care about that. And similarly, when people are bulk uploading data into our feature store, it's the interface to them is like PySpark, because that's what they're familiar with. But behind the scenes, we're using Java and all various things to, to, to shove that around and move it around different places. So the that the, the company as a whole might use a mix of languages, but if you see it as a platform and who, who are your internal customers, then the question then becomes what what languages and what toolkits do they want to use and how do you enable them, basically? Awesome. So I've got... I think we should jump into this because uh, Mike House of Morin and I were talking before everyone got on here about how useful it is to hear about war stories. And I think this is the time, we've got about like 12 minutes left to go through and hear a few war stories from you all, your, maybe your best ones. You don't have to name any names. You don't have to say who or where it was at, but some learnings that you've gotten from that and uh, hopefully uh, helping us not make those same mistakes. I'll start with Mike, House of Morin, because he is the one who brought it up. Uh, so I'll maybe pick a recent one. So uh, we ran an ILD incident learning debrief process at kind of Skyscanner. And, and sometimes it feels like our data scientists are, are, are our QA team. So I own one of the platforms that serves up stuff. Um, and we discovered a problem that was to do with an interaction about how we were expiring data. And it basically turned out that the data that we were uploading was automatically expiring when it shouldn't have. And I won't go into details, but basically it was an interaction of two things that were trying to work and do the right thing. And when they combined together, it, it didn't work well. Um, and it was our data scientists that was like looking at analyzing their experiments and going, hmm, why is the why is the performance of the experiment dropping off? And it's like, oh, because the data is disappearing. That's why. Um, and as, as a result of that, we kind of changed how we were uploading stuff in terms of we changed from an open loop to a closed loop system. So we started doing things like uploading the data and then taking a sample of the data that we think we should have in production and then double checking it really is. And then that has subsequently found other problems kind of thing. So we kind of moved to, uh, we made our process more robust 
by the scientists finding problems and us going, oh shit, right, that's our problem. We'll go and fix that kind of thing. Oh, that's so awesome. The, that is very useful. The data scientist being the QA is one. That's a great quote for you. All right, Lex or, or Michael, you all have one? I could go. I could go. Um, I think, so in the past year, I had a really uh, big learning where it was, you know, you don't always have to use complicated ML, which I think we mentioned today. <laughs> um, so sometimes it can be really, you know, exciting to use like some crazy idea you have with like a new model and try and putting like a paper into um, actual production. And I worked on a project where I was trying to really force a certain type of ML to work for a problem that we shouldn't have been using ML for. Um, so luckily it was an experimental thing. So I spent like four weeks trying to figure out if it was going to work. And I was able to come back to the customer and be like, don't do it. But I probably could have learned that within a week, you know, but the academic side of me was like, I want to deep dive into this and work on it for like work. 12 hours a day. Um, but you know, learn from me, don't do it. If you're forcing something, <laughs> it might not be worth it. Um, there's probably an easier way. So that was a big one. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. That is so good. And that it is very much like the mentality of just, this is going to work. I just need to put more time into it. And then after all that time, you get to a point where you're like, now I can't give up on it because I've put so much time into it. <laughs> So it's I that understand. idea of sunk cost, you know, uh, sometimes you just got to scrap it. Like it kills yeah. the ego, but it's good <laughs> for it you, to a balloon you know? and let it go. <laughs> yes. That's all you got to do. <laughs> all right. Last one, Michael, I'm interested to hear what you got. Um, I was just saying my, my learning was my war story was less to do with like a, a technical, like nuanced thing that happened and more to do with just like how machine learning fits within like the broader, the broader more like product focused like organization. So the project we were working on was a really long engagement where we were, you know, ultimately coordinating back and forth with like the UX and the product team. And I found that as much as there was the technical challenges of getting the model built and ready and like up to production and like, you know, optimizing that, there was also this constant conversation with the product of like what ML can do. And, you know, we'd have these meetings and they'd be like, oh, we, we need the model to do this. We want the model to do this. And, like, I realized that we were working really closely with this customer, but there also was this lack of understanding of, like, what our capabilities were. And they were very much more used to, like, product managing um, typical software development and where it's like, okay, we have a feature. We want to build a feature. Um, let's give ourselves block off a couple of weeks to build that feature and move on to the next feature and we'll go from there. But with, with managing, or like, product managing an ML project, there's a lot of learning for them to be like, okay, like it's not, it doesn't work that way. Like we, we need to have certain features met and ML can only do part of that. Like how, how, and like where the ML actually fit in, I found to be really interesting. And then, and then again, like coordinating all of that with like the UX people as well, it just became like a really interesting conversation. And like for being right in the middle of that, like sort of like managing the engineering team, but then also like leading those conversations with the, with the product side, like how does that all, how we all understand where we are all together was sort of uh, it's less of a technical issue, but more of like an organizational issue, which I hadn't come across before, but was super relevant. That's and that's another super interesting point that I love to talk to people about is the typical two-week sprints and agile method. Is it really the best way of doing machine learning? And so, but that's a topic for the next time I have you all on here. Uh, because we can go deep down into that. And I want to get, I want to put you all in the hot seat real fast. Uh, Mike House of Morin, I'm going to put you in first because I used to travel a lot and I used, I used Skyscanner a ton. And I noticed that when I used Skyscanner and I would be looking at flights and I would close out of the browser and then look back at the flights, the prices went up. Is that because of some machine learning that you created? Uh, no, and that's a it's a common misconception. Um, so I'll very quickly summarize. 
prices and flights are always quite variable, um, and you can have you can have things that can happen where uh, availability of a seat class disappears and the price goes up because it goes to the next seat class. And then if people cancel, like once for some places, when you when you say Lufthansa, you you start your process of booking a flight, you, you hold that seat for a certain period of time. That can cause the seat class availability to change, and so the price goes up. When when your kind of like reservation goes away again, then the price can go back down again. So you can have weird effects happening uh, like that that make it look like the price is changing because you've done something, where actually it's just general price variability. Ah, okay. Lex, you're up next. I'm on I'm Spotify scared. as an artist. <laughs> I have my music on Spotify and they used to recommend my music to a lot of people and it was awesome. My monthly users went up a ton and now they don't recommend it to anybody. What's going on? What can I do to get back on the recommended on Spotify's good side? Who'd you piss off? Yeah, <laughs> that's kidding. what I want to know. <laughs> um, the algorithm. I, I pissed actually, off the algorithm. I that one's tough. I don't, I don't really know. I wish I could speak to it. I had, um, when I worked at Facebook, people would ask me Facebook questions all the time. I'd be like, gosh, I really just don't know. <laughs> and now it's happening at Spotify too. <laughs> yes. I'm very sad. I wish I could this. tell the secret sauce of why different creators are higher than others, but I <laughs> Yeah, I the recommendation. <laughs> algorithm doesn't like me anymore we need some explainability on that algorithm please and now michael i was trying to think of a good one for you but really i i just want to know how many uh, nlp models have been trained on my emails <laughs> okay, um i think you can, uh i definitely don't have the answer to that question but we'll just assume <laughs> I'll just say it's it, whatever whatever models are being trained, they're just making it making your email autocomplete better. Like, you know, just, <laughs> just making <laughs> making everything better. It's so, for my own good, uh, right? <laughs> you you just want more. Just just you should go to bed knowing that you just want more of it. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. You all have been amazing sports and I really appreciate talking to you. It has been very, very informational and a lot of fun too. Hopefully some others got some fun out of it. And thank you for taking the time to do this. This was absolutely excellent. And thank you everybody out there listening and, uh, and being patient with us. This was fun. It was great. Yeah, especially being patient with my audio. I, I apologize again. <laughs> Sorry. It happens, man. Well, Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were just uh, listening. We were watching you get really into that uh that war I mean, story and we we're like what is he saying this must be good you can't hear what we're, we're trying to tell realize him, it no. wasn't even that good <laughs> yeah. no it was great i loved it so all right thanks again y'all this was this was really cool we'll see you later yeah thanks again many thanks, thanks.